Pace Nathan, and I want to welcome you back to the 13-week Bible. This is episode three, the second of 13 episodes designed to serve as a guide to each week's upcoming reading as we move through the entire Bible in just 13 weeks. I hope you've been enjoying your journey so far. I'm here, by the way, with my good friend Sean Brace, and we're going to chat together about what to expect as we move into this week's reading which begins in Exodus 29 and takes us all the way through Deuteronomy 7. Sean, how is it going for you? It's going great, Nathan. I'm really enjoying it and seeing the different themes and patterns that emerge is always very interesting. And every time I read the Bible through, I just pick up new insights and that's why it's so powerful to, to do this sort of thing. Yeah, and I find it pretty incredible, even going through the Bible at this speed, as, as one of your friends said, who would do that? Um, <laughs> but it, I found that it, it contributes so much insight. Um, it may be one read that I pick up a handful of important ideas, but those important ideas seem to be, or can sometimes be very profound in my perception of the larger story. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, I, as we've talked about before, there's definitely pros and cons of doing a quick reading versus a very slow reading, but I just think there's so much to be gained from doing a, a, a very fast, quick reading because you, you do see those those big themes emerge. And also, I mean, not to be almost sounding sacrilegious, but when you do a quick reading, you don't get as discouraged because you're quickly going through sections that maybe aren't as engaging, like the very section that we're going to be talking about today, which is probably where most people kind of abandon their Bible reading plans is in this very section that we're going to discuss today. Yep. And I, that's huge. And, and um, again, we'll probably talk about this more than once, but that's one of the big benefits of reading fast. There's two days, and I think you're talking about Leviticus, two days in Leviticus. And um, <laughs> that's right. it's, it, it's great. You know, you do move through it. Leviticus is one of those books, by the way, where you there's several sections you can kind of run through really fast because to really get something out of them, especially the first few chapters of Leviticus, you need to slow way down. And that's not the purpose of what we're doing. So, and I think that's important to keep in mind. This is not the full spectrum of the study of Scripture. This is a specific approach designed to capture big ideas and some other sprinkling of insights along the way. So we're not disrespecting the text. We're using this tool of rapid reading for a specific purpose. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't serve the purpose of understanding in detail the sacrificial system, which in Exodus and in Leviticus is a big piece of what's being set up. And so just respecting the tool for what it is, using it for what it is, and using other forms of Bible study to investigate those portions that you don't have time for now, or to investigate in a different way the portions of Scripture that we're moving through so quickly. So the last part of Exodus, this last day of reading, is going to take us from 29 to 40. Any specific highlights about this section, which is basically setting up the um, tabernacle service. That's the big chunk of what's happening here. 
Well, it's very interesting that, you know, chapter 40 talks about this sort of what people have called the inauguration of the, of the sanctuary. And that mm. brings up all sorts of interesting theological, you know, discussions and, and, and conversations down the road. But this is basically, you know, the inauguration service where, where Aaron is inaugurated as, as priest. And, mm-hmm. um, again, there's, you can just put that in the back of your mind because little preview, if we remember to bring it up, but when you get all the way, I, I'm sorry, Nathan, I have the habit of going. No, that's good. It's good. But when you get all the way to this book called Hebrews in the new Testament, you're going to hear some of that language again down there, at least as I've come to understand it, there's been great debate about what exactly Hebrews is talking about, but scholars I, I respect have noted that Hebrews seems to be pointing to this inauguration of the sanctuary in heaven, which mm. is echoing what's going on there in Exodus 40. And that's one of the things I love, again, about this fast reading is within 13 weeks, we're going to be watching the construction of the, which is this week, last week, the construction of the tabernacle, its inauguration, and then within, you know, by the end of our time together, I think it's probably in week 13, we're going to read Paul, at least as I assume the author of Hebrews to be, and his kind of recap and application and his his looking back at the tabernacle in hindsight through the lens of the story of Jesus and how the two interface. So what you're reading now is setting us up to understand Messiah in the future. So it's a great thing to keep in mind. I think it is valuable to jump ahead and say, okay, when you're reading now, we're going to see echoes of this coming Mm -hmm. back online when we move into other parts of the book especially as the New Testament looks back and, and reframes things through the Messiah story. That's right. That's right. And I think it is so tempting for us, and I'm assuming most people who are listening are coming from a Christian perspective. It is so tempting for us to do one of two things, I would say. Number one, to just kind of discount the whole Hebrew Bible and say, well, that's a different era. It's a different dispensation. It doesn't have relevance to me as a a follower of Jesus. So it's tempting to do that, which I think obviously is a huge mistake um, because the New Testament does not make sense without the Hebrew Bible. So that's That's temptation number one. Temptation number two is to be overly literalistic with Mm. the Hebrew Bible and say, okay, everything applies to me and I have to figure out every little detail. I have to make sure that I know exactly how many, you know, gems were on the breastplate of, you know, Aaron and all that. And I, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? You know, do I have to buy, you know, similar, you know, whatever, do I have to follow these feasts that they were told to follow and all this stuff. So I think those are two of the dangers, but as you said, understanding how it fits in the story. The story mm-hmm. here in the Hebrew Bible is pointing ahead to Messiah. And so that takes on a whole different level of meaning when it comes to how we understand it. And I think, and again, this goes back to what we talked about in the last episode, letting the story tell its story, letting God tell its mm-hmm. story, tell his story. Mm-hmm. And that means 
taking what we read, holding it, not necessarily applying or interpreting it at the moment. We want to mm -hmm, do that. Mm -hmm, That's part of mm -hmm. Christian life, but maybe not at the moment. Mm -hmm. Let the story unfold. Let the story tell us how to think about the story, how to think about the stories in the story, how to think about what happened before and how to apply it. There's mm -hmm. so much as the story develops that we start to see, okay, this is how it's meant as the prophets in different eras speak into the story. They mm -hmm. frame things differently and help us to understand the larger, help us to understand the story in a more robust way that then we can apply more wisely mm -hmm. right now. I think that is so huge, Nathan, because I'll admit myself, I get impatient. I want to, <laughs> we all want to take shortcuts and say, how does this apply to me? You know, right. how does this apply to me? How do I apply this to my life? And again, I think there's an important place for that because we, you know, scripture is not just a bunch of trivial information, but yes. at the same time, we do want to slow down and see how it fits with the narrative, with the story yeah. before we immediately go, okay, what does this mean for me? You know? Yeah. 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 So good. So um, again, one of the reasons we're doing this fast reading is so that we are keeping in mind that understanding the story of God must include the big picture perspective. Mm -hmm. Just opening up Exodus and doing a deep dive is not going to be the wisest use of time in Scripture unless that happens in the, in the context of the big story. And I find That's that right. the big story is, for me, more helpful than digging into little pieces. If I have mm -hmm. to choose one or the other, I'm going to choose big picture perspective and mm -hmm. lean less on deep dives because the big well, picture perspective helps me not lose track of the storyline. That's right. Well, I mean, the Bible is written in this way because even though it's a big, long book, the Bible, a thousand pages or so, it covers, you know, three, two, three thousand years. So, yeah. So, so the Bible itself is giving us the big picture, even though, again, exactly. there's some weeds, there's some details, but that's that's what it's itself trying to do. And, and so just recognizing that is critically important. Yeah. So a couple things just to mention. I think it's pretty cool that God gifts in this these last few chapters of Exodus. You'll notice that God gifts a group of people um, with the skill for craftsmanship, highly mm. um, skilled, magnificent craftsmanship, which is just a, a cool thing to just to notice um, mm. God's eye for design and beauty and his, his attention to detail and his gifting of people to produce exquisite works of craftsmanship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, when I read these sections, I roll my eyes and I say, oh, boy, what do I care about, you know, the measurements, the whatever, the weights. And then I, I realized that the Bible has many different genres and there might be somebody mm. who is an engineer or a builder and they think, wow, this is really interesting. You know, this is true, exciting. True. And so, you know, there's all sorts of different genres and, and types of literature that the Bible covers. You know, we're going to get into the book of numbers, of course, as well. It's like, I'm not a numbers person. What do I care about numbers? But right. there, there, there are accountants reading, you know, mathematicians reading 
the book of numbers were like, Oh, this is really cool. I really like, you know, this sort of thing being brought out. Yep. So just uh, one other piece to slow down for Exodus 33, 34 tragic time, time frame where um, God's people are just turning their back on him. But in, in kind of that around that story, Moses has a profound encounter with God. So Exodus 33, 34, recount that story. And um, that's just a super important story for orienting our sense of the long story. I was, I was going to mention that as well. And I think it continues this theme of, of presence in the sense that mm-hmm. Moses wants to see God's glory. And God says, basically, you're a sinful person. You can't see my mm. face and live. So it picks up this theme of, of starting in Genesis, you know, one and two, where God and human beings could be in each other's presence. But because of selfishness and sin and rebellion, human beings cannot be in the unmediated presence of God. And, you know, it's not that God doesn't want it. God would love for human beings to be face to face with him. But he says, you can't do it and live. You know, it's just the way things are right now. And so, again, the whole story is trying to recapture that, you know, experience of us being able to look God in the face and live. Mm, yep, yep. So I'm going to do a little Sean thing and jump ahead of the story a bit. <laughs> I'm working on another project, uh, which is part of a writing project right now. And it, I was doing some writing the other day, and it this thing, this idea struck me. So the tabernacle is constructed specifically based on God's desire to be with his people. Mm -hmm. Back in Exodus Mm -hmm. 25, God specifically says, make Mm -hmm. me a tent, make me a tabernacle so I can be with you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is God being with his people. Mm -hmm. And normally we would see, I would have thought traditionally, okay, sort of without putting words on it, God wants to be with us, but then he wants us to be with him, right? So he's going to take us to his house. That's kind of the... The picture I've often had. What's fascinating is actually when we get to the end of the story, the withness of God is him coming to be with us. Mm-hmm. So this picture in scripture is God moving close to us. Yes, he wants us with mm-hmm. him, but he's the one doing the moving in mm-hmm. basically the entire story. God is moving in with us rather than him extracting us to his place He's saying, listen, I want, to, I want to be with you. And mm-hmm. I'm going to come as close to you as I can because you're the person, you're the people I want to be with. And that theme mm-hmm. carries the entire scripture wrapping up in Revelation with God coming to be mm-hmm. with us here mm-hmm. on earth. It's a crazy theme that I'm just mm-hmm. sort of seeing with fresh eyes. So a friend of ours, or at least of mine, maybe you know John Peckham as well, Nathan. He's a theologian in our faith community and Taught, taught at our seminary. He just published a book that um, is supposed to be used now as a textbook for introductory theology students at our various Seventh-day Adventist institutions. And the name of the book is God with Us. And initially mm-hmm. when I initially when I thought of, you know, it's kind of supposed to encapsulate the theology of our faith community, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And initially I, I thought to myself, well, the book should be really entitled God is love. But mm. the more I thought about it, the more I love that idea that that, in, 
that 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 summarizes how we understand scripture is mm. this theme of God with us, God always wanting to be with us, God wanting to be in our presence. And um, yeah, that that, you know, again, going ahead, John one literally uses mm. that imagery and the word became flesh and the word next is in Greek. And he tabernacled among us. He lived among us. So it's yeah. pulling that sanctuary God with us idea out from from the Hebrew Bible. So there's another theme for you to track as you read, as you go through, because we're going to move into Leviticus now. That's the next entire book you're going to read this week is uh, over two days, the book of Leviticus. But again, keeping in mind that as you read or skim through some of these tedious (laughs) details, that this is all against the backdrop of God's longing to be with us. Mm -hmm. Just keep that in mind. Even though they're not, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I don't want to get into to too much here, but it and it's just developing in my mind as we're talking about this. But it's interesting. God announces His desire to be with His people, and then what's the first thing in Leviticus God sets them up to do? It's confession. Mm. That's what. That's what you know. As I was reading the first ten to fifteen chapters of Leviticus, and I'm currently writing on this for my newsletter. And I'm reading all these sacrifices that God has his people doing over and over and over and over and over again. I'm thinking, why all the why all the sacrifices? Why all the details? And it suddenly occurred to me that God was wanting to get his people in the habit of regular confession. Because mm. relationship cannot be fully restored and cannot be experienced if there's not confession. Because anytime there's something between me and another person, between me and you, that relationship cannot be restored unless I get in the practice of confession. Yep, that's a great observation. The other thing that I, I think is worth pointing out is, is uh, it's kind of a big idea as you go through Scripture, and that is the intentionality with which God works to connect cause and effect for his people. So the cause that Mm -hmm. a wrong action has an impact, uh, a consequence, not a consequence so much as punishment, but has a a result. So if you plant Mm -hmm. tomatoes, you get tomato plants. If you plant dandelion seeds, you get dandelions. That cause and effect relationship is built in, wired into the way the universe works. But then God... Um, interposes a layer of sort of artificial layer of cause and effect so that he can teach his people the relationship between actions, decisions, and outcomes without the outcomes being devastating. Sort of like your child disciplining your child for going in the street. Like we could just let the natural Mm -hmm. cause and effect teach them that the street is Mm -hmm. dangerous. The problem is if we do that, it, they may never get the chance to learn the lesson because the first time they go on the street could be the last yeah. time. So, so God is imposing an artificial layer. Evil mm-hmm. is in the end the thing that's destructive, but God wants to impose the education of cause and effect in between mm-hmm. the real cause and effect so that his people can learn that cause and effect relationship without it destroying them before they learn the lesson. Mm. I think that's such a huge and critical idea. And I use that 
that analogy a lot myself as well with children, right? You have to, right? Yeah, you have to, you have to be very black and white and dogmatic with them for their own safety. And yeah, you do impose rules that sort of are guardrails, right? You don't exactly. want them to, yeah, you don't want them to get even close to touching the stove, mm-hmm. right? You get so mm-hmm. um, now. Uh, now, what's critically important is to realize that at some point the guardrails have to come down. Because, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but that's 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 kind of like um, advanced calculus, right? You know, we're, yeah. we're we're in a different stage in the Bible in the story right now, and the problem is, is when many of us in our own maturity have an arrested development where we don't move beyond that. But we think this is the way it's always supposed to be when right. in reality, that's just one part of the story, one part of the process. And I think one other piece to add to this before moving on is that the imposed, the the consequences imposed by God, that's not the cost of evil. That's the training wheels. Mm-hmm. The real destructive piece is in, is essential to sin, to rebellion, to to violating the the way of love itself. So, the the consequences that God uses that are that we find imposed in Scripture they are temporary. God, that is not the cost of doing evil. That's not the cost of doing life your own way instead of God's way. That's a a teaching piece. The real cost. We, we see developed in scripture, but the real cost is broken relationships. The real cost mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. suffering, is society that eventually self-destructs. That's the real cost. These intermediary pieces that we sometimes think are the cost of evil are just teaching pieces that are designed to keep us away from the edge so we don't catastrophically fall off before mm-hmm. learning that evil is a costly way mm-hmm. of being mm-hmm. and that it is a self-destructive and unsustainable way of doing life. This is probably something we'll talk about more and more through, through our journey, but just an important thing to keep in mind that evil is not bad because God's going to punish you. Evil is bad mm. of, its own, of its own self. The punishment piece, the discipline piece is, is a training piece trying to help us get it before it's too late. Yeah, that's certainly a, a Pauline theme. You know, the Apostle Paul in Galatians, he brings that out with the law was supposed to be sort of like a tutor that was exactly. supposed to just keep us safe for a while, um, but ultimately God wants to take the training wheels off. Exactly. And I don't know why, I just feel like sometimes when people, when we look at God, um, we often see him as kind of, the reason why evil's bad. So we're like, well, if God doesn't see it, then I, I should be able to get away with it, right? But the thing is, <laughs> and this is a Proverbs theme. So it's a theme we're going to talk about again and again is the idea that evil is bad in itself. It doesn't need God to do anything for it to be bad and destructive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This layer of training in between is designed to help us correct course and get the best of life before we just self-destruct. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll run around this uh, idea many times as we go through. So we're in Leviticus, and if you're running through, say, Leviticus 8 is is just lots of detailed instructions on sacrifices. You'll find very a lot of similarities from one sacrifice to the next as far as the detailed instructions. Um, watch the similarities, things like leaven, 
um, things like fat, things like blood. You're going to see that coming up. Some some commonalities of how to treat those things. Um, Sean, anything in those first few chapters you would highlight other than what you've already mentioned? Yeah, well, yeah, again, the confession piece. But then, again, realizing because you and I and all of our listeners are reading this in 21st century AD, mm-hmm. and we just are like, what is this all about? Um, just realizing that, again, God was using the language that people understood by enacting sacrifice. I don't think, I'm just putting this out there, maybe I'm way off, but I don't think God ideally would use this type of animal sacrifice system if he was you know, starting with a blank slate. I think it probably had a lot to do with just what people were familiar with. Um, in mm. those days. So, you know, that's just, again, something to, to remember and to keep in mind that, that this is God speaking to people 3,500 years ago or so. Mm. And this is, this is how they understood, just like today, God speaks to us in ways that we can understand because of our context. This is what is going on with Leviticus, I believe. Yeah, good, good. Um, so then we're going to move through some instructions on what you eat. Um, mm. We're going to also move through instructions on um, for feminine hygiene is there. <laughs> I am fascinated by the guidelines on dealing with molds and contagious <laughs> yeah. illnesses. Yeah. Just for God me, was... the level of hygiene that God's got yeah. like really interested in the welfare of his people and he gives them these very practical guidelines before they ever knew germ theory right god is yeah. giving these details for addressing things that were were spreading were contagions yeah that's what struck me as well when i was reading it this time i was like okay this is god being concerned about making sure the people were healthy and right you know being able to have clean spaces and you know obviously having come just come through a pandemic maybe this is a little more relevant (laughs) and understandable in our minds but yeah it's like our own children we're like okay you gotta shower you gotta brush your teeth you have to use deodorant i mean these are just basic things that they probably didn't know much about and it, it looks like god is trying to micromanage people but he's just literally wanting them to survive right he's wanting them to, to continue to prosper and help yeah, I mean, we do things today like radon remediation, where you spend thousands of dollars to have a system to protect your family from radon if you're in a, an area that has high radon. We do this with black mold. Mm. My kids mm-hmm. um, had gotten a little careless on their bathroom cleaning and had <laughs> some mold growing. And it's super important. Like if that black mold gets into the air, if that black mold is allowed to get into the structure of the house, you can end up having a whole house condemned. So it's not mm-hmm. really that different um, mm-hmm. from what we find from fabrics to, to houses. There was a time, just anyway, just read those sections through and just notice how interested God is that they have an environment that's conducive to physical flourishing, not just spiritual mm-hmm. flourishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So, and then we're going to move through some of the feasts. I believe chapter 17 is, um, did I get that time right? Uh, Chapter 17 uh, addresses dealing with blood. 
and well, foreigners. You, you don't. You have obviously. Well, you have chapter sixteen as well, which is a very. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Thank you, chapter sixteen. <laughs> yeah, many identify as. Some have have said that this is actually the very center of the the Torah. Very center of the five books of Moses is actually lands on Leviticus sixteen, mm. which is talking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, yeah. which is sort of the the climax of the whole year and the whole sacrificial system is this day of ultimate cleansing, mm-hmm. uh, kind of spiritual cleansing. Um, but you know, I think you and I probably would be inclined to see it as having big significance in sort of the big story of God trying to maybe, I don't know to what degree they could understand it in those days, but, you know, in hindsight now having the benefit of seeing it through the lens of Jesus, um, Mm -hmm. maybe on a macro scale, God announcing that he's going to once and for all put an end to sin and suffering and pain and, and, you know, selfishness. And ultimately he's trying to, kind of cleanse the sanctuary and and just again we won't develop that right now because i'm sure we'll talk about it later on when we get to later books in the hebrew bible uh, in the new testament but just put that in the back of your mind leviticus 16 the cleansing of the sanctuary the the day of atonement um has a pretty important place in the story of scripture yeah, 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 excellent. So then 17, as I was uh, stumbling over my words a bit there, <laughs> 17 goes into more guidelines, um, 17, 18, et cetera. You're going to see just lists of guidelines, a heavy emphasis on sexual purity. Mm, and um, I, I'm guessing that's obviously a that, big, <laughs> yeah, that's obviously a big topic. Big topic. But I think part of it is not just a general sexual purity, but they're also coming from a culture where sexuality and human life are treated, you know, as slaves. Mm-hmm. They were at the bottom mm-hmm. of the totem pole. So mm-hmm. God was having to retrain them as to the value of the human body and mm-hmm. of each other. And so you're going to see some stuff in, in Leviticus that you're going to scratch your head about, but then you're going to see things that are really straightforward on as far as sexuality guidelines, as far as fairness in the treatment of, of people who are not part of your, who are, who are foreigners, um, the treatment of people that work for you, the um, even conduct in trade. And so for me, the thing that really stands out is God's effort to create a fair and equitable society. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And as you pointed out, He's often reminding them that they are not to act like the people from whom they were liberated. Like you are not supposed to sleep with, you know, this person just as they did back in Egypt. You know, you're, you're there. They were to be a different people. And it wasn't just different for the sake of, of being different, but as you say, to, to value the body, to value life, to value relation, relational integrity. Yep. And so the other piece we're going to notice, well, that I think you should notice is, is the provision for the poor that comes up in more than uh, one spot in Leviticus. Just, just notice that God specifically speaks to provisions for the poor and to foreigners. So again, an equitable society where 
goodness defines the rhythm of that society. That's what God's trying to build. So sure, we have a hard time understanding some of the particular guidelines. We have sometimes stumble and choke over, um, more so in the fu- in future readings, over the way certain situations are dealt with. But noticing the bigger picture, just stepping back and asking yourself if if this social dream that God's after had been created, what kind of society would that be? And when I ask that question, I just come to this, this realization that it would be a beautiful, just society if the dream that can sometimes, again, get lost in some of the things that we don't understand, but if the, just the big picture dream was carried out, it would be an incredible way to exist as a nation or even a town, city, etc., Hmm. Great points. So then we move, uh, kind of moved through the end of Leviticus and into Numbers. And actually, I was wrong. We're finishing Leviticus and Numbers this week. And Mm -hmm. uh, so Numbers, quite a book. Again, (laughs) some of this initial book is a book to kind of, cruise through, at least for me, with the lists of uh, yeah. counting of families. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. I didn't, I didn't slow down to, you know, parse every, every number that came, came upon my, my reading for sure. But there's yeah. also stories, there's also stories. There's some in, good you know, stories. Some yes. really important ones about you know, Caleb and Joshua and the spies that go in to yep, look at the huge, land. And, huge. and that's, again, sets the table for the wandering that takes place after that for 40 years because it does. they said, we can't take the land. And God uh, was not happy with them about that. Right. So beautiful blessing in, in number six. Just be looking for that beautiful blessing in number six. And uh, so we're going to skip through all these sort of countings and uh, setting up who's responsible for what, and just noting the story to watch out for these stories in the text. Mm-hmm. And one of those is, is God dealing with Miriam and Aaron, who are questioning Moses' um, central leadership and how God clarifies mm-hmm. that. Well, one of them as well is the, the daughters of Zelephahad, who are wanting an inheritance and there's no, you know, they don't have brothers and, yep. and they say, wait a minute, we, we deserve an inheritance. And it's really neat to see the, the value that God places on, on women here. Yep, exactly. And so then we have the inspection of the land of Canaan and there are a group of spies chosen and those spies come back and they give this awful report. And that is a huge, huge turning point in the story of Israel. It's like two month journey, about two months, two to three months within, I think within three months, if you follow the storyline, Israel would have been either right on the borders of the promised land or actually having entered into it. But instead the story turns when um, the spies 10 of the 12 spies that go in bring this discouraging report and the people are just devastated because they believe the report instead of trusting the God who parted the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a theme, Nathan, that comes up over and over and over again. The people, God, the people complain, God delivers them, then the people complain again. God delivers them, people complain again. It just goes round and round. And this is maybe the the height of that pattern where they are. And every time where they say, let's just go back into Egypt. We were better off there. You know, bring us back there. Yeah, how quickly they forgot how mm. miserable Egypt. I mean, they're getting, we, we, we noted back in Exodus, they get free free bread every morning called manna. Mm-hmm. And um, it, except for Sabbaths. But other than that, there's free bread every morning. It's double portion on Friday so that they have food for Sabbath, but they don't have to collect on Sabbath. This is happening throughout their journey. There is never food insecurity um, during the entire journey. The food doesn't stop until they're eating the food in the, the land that God gave them, that God promised to Abraham. And so the food, we have water provided. They run into a few times where they're like in water crisis mode. God provides. We find that story showing up in numbers, God providing water. And um, so there's a story, interesting, tragic story, actually, after the death uh, or after the people just rebel against God. These guys... Um, band together, Kor, Dathan, and Abiram. So kind of a, a tragic story of rebellion there that um, is dealt with very decisively to prevent rebellion from kind of collapsing the this fledgling civilization that had to make it through the wilderness all the way to this promised land. Yeah, and that comes up, you know, a few times throughout the story of, is this kind of revolt that that takes place, you know, between these various people who think they know how to do it better. And, you mm-hmm. know, again, there's all sorts of theological questions that arise. Well, how could God have struck these people dead? But, um, you know, just recognizing again that, that that's, a important, that's an important piece for God. And we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, when it comes to seemingly the jealousy of God. I'll put it in that. In that mm. way, um, you know, we can talk about that in a future, probably, episode. But, yeah. Yeah, and I think we're going to definitely touch on that. Maybe we'll touch on that in Deuteronomy. I just, just one more thing to highlight, just to keep your eyes open for the story of Balak and Balaam. Takes mm. up a few chapters here. Some of the most magnificent prophecies about God's people <laughs> and about the Messiah actually are given by this prophet that has no connection, as far as we can tell, to the Hebrew people. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Fascinating a, a, story. Yeah. yeah. Slow down for that story. If you know, skim the other stuff to slow down for that story. Certainly, there's a couple other story spots that are good, but the Balak Balaam story is fascinating and comes up all the way in the Revelation. By the time we get there, we find the Balak story, Balaam story coming up again, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. Mm hmm. I think the only other major thing to mention as you're going through Numbers, Leviticus, etc., is how God reminds the people, listen, I'm setting you up for blessing. If you go along with the instructions I'm giving you, you're going to prosper. If you don't, though, it's going to be awful. And I think this is something we got to talk about when we get to Deuteronomy because there's the blessings and curses at the end of Deuteronomy. We're going to keep our eyes open for that. Anything else in Numbers before we just dab our foot into Deuteronomy? No, I think Deuteronomy is uh, calling our name. Yes. Deuteronomy is probably my favorite.
favorite of, well, one of my favorites, Genesis and Deuteronomy, I think are my favorites mm. of the first four, five books of the Bible. Um, Deuteronomy, I find for me, is, is kind of a fatherly recap of the entire story. It's interesting mm -hmm. that some of the, some of what we, is, is recorded in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, when Moses recounts it, he puts a little bit of a different spin on it. I don't know if you've noticed that, Sean, mm. but it's fascinating I, to see that. Yeah, I, I did notice that. Obviously, even the Ten, the ten Commandments, yes, the, giving right, of, exactly. the reciting of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5 is a little, most of them are, are the same, but especially the Sabbath commandment, it's framed a little differently. Um, so that's an interesting that's an interesting thing to notice. Of course, the reason, part of the reason Moses gives these farewell sermons, if you will, is because he's now speaking to a different audience. Yes, you know, that's this is right. After the, the forty years, and so these people, these these people who either were children or they weren't even alive when you know the journey began, he's now having to recite this stuff for them to keep them on track as to where they're headed. That's right. So you're going to notice as you read the story that when the Israelites got discouraged and angry over the spies report, the 12 spies report, they ended up not being able to go into the promised land. So, so those folks that just turned their backs on God at the first encounter with the promised land or, or on the borders of the promised land the first time, those folks didn't go in. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And mm -hmm. Deuteronomy is the end of those 40 years. Moses, which is a story you'll have to look for, is not going to enter the promised land himself. So watch for that story that explains why. So he is passing the baton, and Deuteronomy is Moses' communication to the people of Israel to set them up for success as they follow their new leader, across the Jordan and into the promised land. That's the entire purpose of Deuteronomy is setting them up for success by the recap and um, the teaching that that essentially mm -hmm. is, again, essentially a recap of, of the history and the guidelines from, not, not all the guidelines, but the big picture guidelines from mm -hmm. um, the previous 40 years. So this week you're only going through Deuteronomy seven, Sean. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say you can't. You know, Deuteronomy six is arguably, you know, the most important yep. part of Scripture for uh, for 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 Jewish people, um, where the you know what is called the Great Shema: Hear, mm -hmm. O Israel, hear the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And then you know it sets out that you know the greatest commandment according to Jesus. You know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart mind and soul. And um, so that's a really important. And, you know, of course, it talks about making sure the children, you teach this to the children and, and so forth and so on. So, you know, just just notice that when, you know, it's fascinating, of course, that when Jesus comes along and he talks about the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, you know, they're taken, and we could have mentioned this in Leviticus, but where the second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. That's actually right in the heart of this very, painful book Leviticus. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, fascinating stuff. And a, and a great reminder that this God has a big picture vision of where he wants to get things, human family, 
And we're just looking at how God is slowly, methodically, strategically working to shape the human family over the mm-hmm. arc of history. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and no, yeah, part of that, you know, the 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 Lord our God is one. And we're gonna, I'm gonna bring this out just to give you a little sneak preview here in a, a future episode, maybe tomorrow or, or sorry, next week, is the incredible cataclysmic revolutionary monotheistic understanding that god introduces to Mm -hmm. his people Mm -hmm. i mean i don't think we understand the degree to which that approach is just completely earth shattered we don't probably appreciate it living in 21st century america or wherever we're listening to this but just how revolutionary yeah. that idea was and how important that idea was. That's a great thought to end on. So enjoy your reading for the week. Go dive into the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, all of Numbers, and then dabble your toes in Deuteronomy as we move through almost, in fact, to the end of the first five books of the Bible. And God bless you. Until next time, enjoy the text. See, experience, live. Loveshaped.life.